You're listening to the Stronger Stride podcast with your hosts, Lydia Mackay and Sophie Lane. Hello, guys. Welcome back to another episode. Um, super exciting one once again for you today. Before As always, we, right? Oh, always. Whenever Do we ever have exciting. non-exciting ones? No. <laughs> um, before we get into that, let's chat a little bit about our last fortnight's worth of training. Um, we will briefly touch on UTA, although if you want to hear an in-depth discussion about UTA, check out our live stream on Instagram. If you like, it'll be pre-recorded by the time you're hearing this. So go back through and watch that. Skip through. We're going to go through a bunch of questions. We're going to debrief on our own races. So if you want to talk UTA, check it out over there. And then in this episode, we'll just go through our basic um, training for the last couple of weeks. So Lydia, do you want to kick us off? Oh, certainly would. Um, last two weeks, it's been fantastic, really. Um, that was like so overwhelmingly optimistic. It doesn't have to be that optimistic, but anyway, it was, it was a good two weeks, mostly because of UTA. Um, and we will, as Sophie just said, we'll chat about that later. So I won't go, or you can check out the Insta live recording to hear about that, but just a little touch on it. It was a fantastic, fantastic weekend. And it all went well. It was really just great to catch up, to be honest. Um, <laughs> with, with Sophie, <laughs> you know, give or take the run part. <laughs> <laughs> the run was amazing. Gosh, highly recommend the run to anyone. Um, <laughs> anyone and everyone, go to UTA. If you can't run, volunteer. The, it'll be, it's an amazing event. Um, but we won't delve into that now. Um, just in general, the last two weeks, I've been doing, yeah, I've been running a lot. So I think the end of the two weeks was, sorry, the very start was UTA and then um, kind of like recovery week. But I sort of just was in such a good mood afterwards that it's just sort of been much the same really with training. In fact, if anything, just sort of like building again, hopefully, because um, I did have quite a solid taper for UTA. So sort of back into running higher volume k's for me high volume weeks for me um which is really good being back out in the bush i've run a few new trails that i haven't seen seen some new waterfalls which is exciting and um no nothing really that eventful actually i feel like well, the, I the uta was a big enough event so you, you know you've got to spread out your events not yeah true. every week true <laughs> but yeah body's feeling really good i was sort of thinking that maybe I'd pull up sore or something, but honestly felt great. Like I would have run the next day, except I kind of just had a long day, not a long day, but like we had, we had yoga in the morning. That was very important. <laughs> and um, shout out to my mum for the yoga yes. session. Oh, that was so good. I loved that. And then we went for coffee. We went for a walk in the town and then I had to drive back to Sydney and then fly home and then had to watch the sunset. Of course, most had important to. part of the Not day. <laughs> yeah and so look I just had to unpack all my gross sweaty smelly trail gear is the truth of it but the moral of the story is really felt great the next day and the next day um my car was in the workshop so I had to run anyway just to get to the gym um because I wanted to go to the gym and also I work at the gym so yeah I had didn't have a choice luckily I got lifts to work imagine if I had to run to work as well but um yeah, straight back into it. Feeling good, feeling inspired, feeling motivated. And that's about it. Good. Good to hear. Yeah. 
Very good. What about you, sir? My turn. Um, Yeah, similar. Not quite as many kilometres as you, but that's usual. Um, I had a couple of days off after UTA and then just been doing a couple of easy runs since then. I went to Canberra last weekend, so I ran up Mount Ainsley, which was fun. I um, thought I was going to get attacked by kangaroos. I don't know, like, if they get angry, but... Oh, they I was just, do. you got to watch out. Oh, yeah, I know. Well, they looked scary, like cute, but scary. I'd run to the top and it took a lot longer than I thought. So I was like, I'll just like cut through, like not stay on the main track to get back, back down. Mm. And then, you know, you're just following like one of those little tracks and then it kind of just ends randomly. And you're like, oh, like now I'm going to go back. <laughs> so I like got to the dead end and then looked up and there was just a kangaroo, like a meter in front oh, of me just standing there. Scary. And I was like, oh, hello. Hey. <laughs> Sorry to disturb you. And then I turn Hi. around and they're everywhere. Like I was surrounded. I th- like I Goodness. thought they were like coming in to get me. They um, yeah, wow. So I was like, and you know when like every step you take, it's like crunchy leaves because it's autumn. So I was like, they're gonna <laughs> think I'm like. So I was trying to like tiptoe through the bush. It was a bit scary, but I don't know if I was just being dramatic or not. But I just didn't want to get attacked by kangaroos, and I didn't want them to think I was trying to like disturb them. Mm. You know, we can share oh. trails together, us and the kangaroos. <laughs> Anyways, so that was nice. And then last week, guess what? I didn't realize until just looking now. Mm. I ran six days last week. Yeah, right. That's good for me. Yeah, yeah. That's great. <laughs> um, so that's good. So I'm trying to just, even if it's just a short run, just run most days of the week. Yeah. Um, it's Isn't it a weird balance between, because we spoke about this only a few weeks ago about rather than doing lots of lots of little runs, doing just a few more Ks on your runs so yeah. you don't have to run as much. And then you've sung back into... It just into, depends on what's happening. Like I know. And I'm excited because yeah. I've got one more week at my current job and then I have a new job and I have a completely new schedule and I'm so excited to like so test exciting. out shall I run in the morning or the afternoon Aww. like I'll have the option so I know for that so I'm just gonna have one more like transition week yeah and then new training block kicks off that's so exciting for June not sure what we're training for yet but something <laughs> so many things you know what I need to tell you I today was really busy at work being really yeah at my boss xbox x xbox, xbox. <laughs> isn't listening um i had like 20 tabs open because i went on that running calendar oh. new south wales <gasps> oh so many every weekend there's something on there's like three on i one. know and i don't know how i'm gonna figure out what to do but i just had all these tabs open it was very mm. overwhelming and i was like okay i'll go through and like cut out the ones i don't want and i just could i just want them all oh. but we're gonna have to figure that out well we'll have to have a chat we do maybe not right now but i'm gonna send you my calendar because i put in so many runs and there's like i put some on the on the one drive there's a list oh okay great awesome (laughs) check it out um just a quick quick note on your kangaroo story i didn't even tell you one of my kangaroo stories (laughs) no there was a snake on my track that i was running the other day i did the cross country up here i'd forgotten about that that was really nice and there was this bright green tree snake on the path and like there was no one else around at the time and like okay tree snake fine but he was on the path in my way his head was in up my and way he was you like, own the path yeah i know who's there first <laughs> i was like do i stop my garmin like what, what are my strava fans gonna think i have a random stop in my run? Fans. yeah that's what it fans? all the fans but the same <laughs> Well, yeah. wow, two weeks in a row he gets a shout out yeah he deserves it but he's just yeah. looking at me and i didn't know what to do i was like oh, oh. can you just move so no, you just leap goes, over. you just what leap over the top oh hurdles like no, i didn't do well at hurdles i retired Retire. when i was eight the hurdles kept on <laughs> getting higher and i didn't get any well taller. you should have kept growing <laughs> no i'm gonna stop growing. Wow, that's yeah. dramatic anyway mm. 
We are animal gurus as well as running enthusiasts. Add it exactly. to the resume. Um, yeah. <laughs> it no. is good to see. Uh, well, it's nice that they're the like, wildlife. It's nice that they're still out there. You know, sometimes you like be with like city suburbia. Oh yeah, you just forget that that they were there first. <laughs> it's there. It's their place. <laughs> we should yeah. feel blessed to run at the, in their homes. Yeah, it's but like the leeches. When shout you out leeches. to the kangaroos and the snakes, but no, not leeches. They don't count <laughs> anything but leeches. Anyway, shall we get to today's exciting? Oh, yes, now, I'm actually so interesting because. I feel like you need to um, redeem yourself. Redeem yourself from yeah. the intro that everyone else will hear in a minute. Oh, the intro was terrible when you well, actually hear the episode because I said the wrong thing that our guest is studying after we had just discussed it. But that's fine. yes, we just Here's discussed your it. Round two for redemption. Yeah. So we have. <laughs> an accredited sports nutritionist who also has his graduate diploma in performance nutrition, and he is studying his master's in sport and exercise nutrition while working as a nutrition coach. And his name is Mac (laughs) Baker or Mackenzie Baker. He also has a podcast called the Mac podcast, and he's got an Instagram page where he posts heaps of nutrition content, um, videos, I mean, what else does he post? Just Basically, rants, rants. Yeah, better way to say that. just like good content. Yeah, but basically, his his thing is well, at least for the way I see it, he does heaps of simplifying complex concepts. I can't even speak. I can't even say that. But yeah, he he breaks down very confusing things in the nutrition world and tries to make them really easy for people to understand. He's big on practical tips. He doesn't just sort of give wishy-washy advice. He likes to make things clear, speak concisely on topics and give really practical advice for people. So he works with a lot of weight loss patients, well, clients, um, but also he has got, I think, a runner that he coaches and quite a few people in the endurance space um as well as just has an interest in coaching nutrition for performance not just weight loss so we're super excited to have him on um we dive into eating for performance compared to just eating for exercise and we sort of unpack the mental health side of it and like the dangers of just blindly following macros or tracking your food long term and the sort of things that you might see on social media that you should be aware of and that you should steer clear of and who to actually go and get proper advice from, which was really good because it is confusing. Mm. It is very confusing. There's so much like bad info out there and so many things that seem really believable. And like, mm. everyone, if you've got like a blue tick on your Instagram, you're really easy to trust. Yeah. But uh, we often it means, like it means nothing often. Yeah. Mm. It, yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't at all. And one of the things that we speak about, which – for any runner or for anyone, actually, I just think it is so important. And I'm so glad we got to discuss it and we really went into detail is low energy availability and REDS. So REDS stands for Relative Energy Defic- Deficiency in Sport. It used to be known as the Female Athlete Triad, but now it's um, REDS in sport, but also potentially there's a carryover for just general population. But we really talk about the dangers of uh, basically under eating or and or possibly at the same time overtraining, and we talk about the symptoms to look out for and then what that can actually mean and 
what could happen to you long-term, whether that just means initially not performing well, leading to things like just general sort of injuries, plateauing in your training or really serious consequences like fractures, um, poor immune system, deterioration of just uh, hormone function, a whole, whole long list of crazy things that you should be aware of. So that's something that affects a lot of long distance runners, a lot of endurance athletes, and we unpacked it and talked about it. So re- yeah, really important for everyone. Please listen to this episode because that's yes. important. Definitely. Enjoy the episode, guys. As always, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, subscribe or follow on Spotify or Apple or wherever you listen. Um, follow us on Instagram as well at Strongest Stride and all of Max's links will be in the show notes as well. So definitely check him out. He's got some really nice um, sort of simple posts that break down some really complex mm. concepts. So check those really out. Really good. Um, and let us know what you think. Yep. And we have links to him. Did you say that, Sarah? We've got yep. his links. We link to a um, journal article that he mentioned as well in the podcast and to his podcast as well. Please check out his podcast. He's got some really, really great episodes. Um, also to an article about vegan diets for athletes because we chat about that in the episode as well. So check it out. Cool. Okie doke. Enjoy and we will catch you in two weeks' time. Yeah, that's it. Thanks, guys. Enjoy the episode. Without further ado, welcome back to the Strongest Side podcast. We have a very special guest today. We have Mac Baker, who is an accredited sports nutritionist. He has his postgraduate diploma in performance nutrition and is currently studying his master's in applied nutrition also. So very exciting. Welcome to the show, Mac. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Um, just to clarify, it's a master in sport and exercise nutrition. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, so you had one job. <laughs> we just discussed this so clearly. Laid what it out right in front of you. What anyway, we're not going again. That's honestly, it. <laughs> honestly, don't sweat. Don't sweat and leave that shit in. That is gold. <laughs> I um, am sweating. I cannot tell you. I cannot tell you how many times. I have made errors like that with my oh, podcast. So goodness. I'm not sure if you know, you know that dietitian, the savvy dietitian? Yes, yes. Yeah. So I asked her to clarify her surname seconds oh, before no. I pressed record. <laughs> and then when I introduced her, I said her surname incorrectly. Oh. So you like, I'm not judging you at all. <laughs> okay. Well, I, no. okay. It's safe to say I'll. So that's um, that our guest is very generous. Thank you, Mac. I appreciate. <laughs> All good. I appreciate that. Um, you know what? This would be a great opportunity for you to tell us who you actually are and what you do. I think it is very confusing for most people to know the difference between nutritionist, dietitian, sports nutritionist. It's all very confusing. Even, I mean, I've worked as a PT the last four years and people still think that I'm a dietitian and I'm not. (laughs) So it's very, it's a very confusing world, even for someone who is involved in that world. So it'd be awesome if you could just explain who you are and what you do. For sure. So um, I'm a sports nutritionist. Um, Now the problem with the term nutritionist is that it's not protected. Mm. Um, Dietitian is, and dietitians, you know, they're legit. Like they've been to uni, they've done an undergraduate in, or an undergrad in um, health science or similar other, and then they've gone and done their master's in dietetics. So for me, you know, being a nutritionist, I get lobbed in the same camp as people who've done like a three-day course who now think they they can cure diabetes through a nutritional Mm. intervention. Erroneous. 
but um, for me, in my case, like it is a certificate level, a qualification, and then going doing postgraduate studies. I managed to get into that through a few sneaky things through electives I did at my previous undergrad and just like bits and bobs. Um, so basically I went straight into uh, postgraduate study um, after the certificate level. And then, um, so that gave me like a postgraduate I guess, qualification or something, an open accreditation to be a sports nutritionist. Um, and then now I'm sort of midway through a master's in sport and exercise nutrition. So, you know, the term nutritionist is thrown around, nutritionist is thrown around very loosely. Um, but, you know, there are good nutritionists out there, ones who are formally accredited and insured. And then there are also nutritionists who are not that. So, um, yeah, that's the lay of the land with regards to that. In terms of personal trainers, um, they're basically the same as anyone off the street. However, through Fitness Australia, personal trainers do have scope of practice to guide their clients through nutrition using the Australian Dietary Guidelines. And that's no calories, no macros, no meal plans. It's just basic things like, you know, recommended servings of fruit and vegetables, whole grains, et cetera. So that kind of gives you a brief flay of the land. Yeah, awesome. Mm. And what does the master's give you? So where you're at currently versus where you'll be after that, does that change your title or like, in, in, I guess, expand your scope? What does that actually give you? Uh, unfortunately, I'm already openly accredited with my existing qualifications. So I don't get any more accreditation mm -hmm. through um, the master's. However, it is research-based. So oh, I will cool. be doing sort of like a, a major research project. And then my hope, at least at this point in time, is that will get me into a PhD. Um, you know, a lot of people around me are telling me that, oh yeah, you'll get in, you get into it for sure. No worries, no worries. I'm not so confident. I'm not going to say I will until it's happened, mm -hmm. but you know, it's still like doing a PhD is kind of like a big deal. So right now I'm just basically like, let's just finish the masters. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the ultimate goal is to do a PhD. Um, wow. And then in my eyes, that's like the top of the top. So yeah. And what yeah, would you... in terms of sports nutrition, yeah, cool. And for that PhD, have you got an idea of what you'd want to base that on or? Yeah, for sure. I do. Um, I, you know, as a teenager, surfing was my number one thing. I used to do little surf comps and things like that. Heaps competitive, heaps into it. And then, you know, when you leave school, you start partying and, you know, surfing becomes too hard or that great, fantastic outdoor activity you were into as a teenager sort of goes to the wayside. And then, um, you know, ultimately at the end of 2019, like I had a few aha moments and was like, I've got to do something about this. So I actually started surfing again, um, but just really taking a different approach to it and being more of like just an everyday surfer. And, you know, you, I'd start to build up a following again of, you know, all the surfers that I look up to and the, the industry people. And, you know, these days in pro surfing, there is so much money behind it you know, the pro surfers will have physios and, you know, gym, like personal trainers with them and like masseuses and all these freaking people who they're paying bank to, to like travel around the world with them while they sort of help them. Yet the nutrition recommendations are just like, oh yeah, um, you know, my jujitsu coach told me that like I should have bulletproof coffee or some shit like that. <laughs> it's woeful. It's so behind. So my motive is to actually, you know, create, um, I'll do research into like the bioenergetic demands of 
surfing or come up with a list of practical recommendations or things like that. Um, obviously haven't quite honed down on it yet, but I do know where I want to go with that. Um, and oddly surfing can have a lot of similarities with like endurance running, for example, mm -hmm. it is a, an aerobic based sport. Um, but it is also aerobic based with a high deal of variation. Um, mm. you know, you can go for a surf and just be sitting there for an hour, um, getting cold, but then you can go out and it can be like the equivalent in my opinion of going for a really hard, long endurance run. Mm. Um, so yeah, there are similarities there. Um, and that's the thing with sports nutrition is regardless of the sport, we still have principles mm. and we take those principles and apply them to the situation and apply them to the goal accordingly. Yeah. Again, awesome. massive tangent. No, that's good. <laughs> cool. That's exciting. Be keen to see where you go with that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So what sparked interest in nutrition then? Was it surfing or did it come a little bit later? Oh, you have just opened a can of things. Uh. <laughs> All right. I'm going to try and be really concise here. <laughs> So I mentioned to you that I used to, did I mention this? Oh yeah, I did. I used to race mountain bikes as a teenager as well. So that they were my two things awesome. like mountain biking and surfing when I was a teenager wow. competitively. And, you know, I went to, I did the national races and stuff. For That's awesome. Mountain bike. Anyway, so I was with a group of mates <laughs> and, you know, some of them were like setting up to become, you know, world level athletes in the sport. Wow. Yeah. Um, and I was sort of just below them and it really pissed me off and I was heaps competitive. Uh, and one of my mates went to the gym, started going to the gym to train, to be a better mountain biker. And I was like, well, I'm going to do that too. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I started awesome. going to the gym for mountain biking to better my performance. But then, you know, soon after, um, you know, I think I was in year 12 at the time and it shifts towards like trying to get jacked. <laughs> mm, very aesthetic based. Yeah. You it, know, you it's hard not it. to, in the gym oh, 100%. Not that age, you yeah. just expect it regardless of how you're training like if i'm lifting weights <laughs> i want to look like i do mm. i yeah. never got results never got newbie gains none of that shit and it pissed <laughs> me off mm. it really pissed me off so i started going down the rabbit hole of being more interested in training wanting to like beat it to prove to myself like that i could do it um and then the more i got into it the more i learned that nutrition is a part of that and then I fell into personal training just kind of like by chance. Um, and I started to notice that whenever my clients got results, the one common denominator was that there was some kind of nutrition intervention. Mm. Um, and soon after that, you know, after going through all the bullshit and falling for all the, the crap, you know, I was very, I, I started working in a Poliquin-esque gym. I'm not sure if you know what that means, but it's this, this guy who made this like, it's very guru sort of paleo style mindset towards nutrition and that was where i started i had to unlearn all of that and i unlearned mm. that by observing common trends when people got results and it was calories was the common denominator so that gave me like the start of a few aha moments and then from there it snowballed into getting greater interest in nutrition uh, i never really had that much of an interest in training but i just sort of did it um, but i realized that nutrition is something that i wanted to not pursue at the time, but just get more into even for my own interest. So it was like informal education, a bit of formal education. Um, I did it as part of some electives for, for my undergrad, which did help me, you know, get into the postgrad diploma sort of situation. Um, and yeah, it started snowballing from there. And then over a two year period, personal training started to drop off and then subsequently nutrition started to build up. Um, 
and building up that nutrition sort of part of my business um, sort of went concurrently with just like an, like a massive passion for it. And that passion was quite heavily put into my presence on social media. And then, mm. you know, people notice genuine, like when you're genuine, when you are truly passionate and, you mm. know, I attribute a lot of that to just being myself and putting myself out there and feeling like I have a message or helpful information that is worth sharing that I was passionate about sharing, doing that consistently, and then people wanting to come on for the ride. And, mm. you know, probably two years ago, uh, PT became a thing of the past for me. Um, and it yeah. was just full on nutrition. We love the idea of getting you on because I know you do coach a runner um, who does some endurance stuff as well as I know you're pretty big in the fitness space. Another thing that I'm quite surprised at, like personally, endurance sports isn't something that I have a personal interest in that much. Mm. Although I used to race cross country mountain biking, but mm. you know, I'm not like sort of real focused on it specifically mm. for a personal interest, mm. but I'm actually shocked at how many clients I have who are endurance athletes. Mm. Um, I didn't expect to be so involved with endurance athletes, uh, but that's sort of the way it's panned out. And I actually have some thoughts about this and I was speaking to someone about this the other day. Um, you know, COVID people are staying at home. Uh, people have to find new hobbies and interests. You know, those people mm. who used to, used to surf, used to mountain bike, used to, you know, be into that sort of thing. All of a sudden, like, you know, they got involved in drinking and going out and that became their big hobby yeah. and they can't do that. Yeah, and <laughs> we see this resurgence of people like just everyday athletes, like recreational people who just like, I want to do an ultra. I want to give it a go. I want to do a triathlon. Um, and, you know, I think it's been observed across many outdoor activities, many outdoor physical activities. Um, you know, I was speaking to someone about the mountain biking industry recently and apparently you know, uh, to not be out, it's very difficult to order a mountain bike and it takes ages for it to be delivered. Uh, there was a sort shortage of surfboard blanks. So oh, all the really? shapers couldn't make surfboards and mm. like, you know, even how many clients I've now got who are endurance athletes, I'm like, shit, this is really like massive. Mm. People are getting involved and yeah, all of them are just like people who just want to have a go, you know, they just want to get out there and that's freaking awesome. Uh, but mm. in terms of how that relates to nutrition, how we would approach someone's nutrition who is just like giving it a crack versus yeah. like an elite endurance mm. athlete is a different story. Yeah. All right, I just went off a massive tangent. No, I, <laughs> love, good. That. That I good. love that. I love that. <laughs> what are you studying? What are you studying? <laughs> Next minute. <laughs> that's good. That's awesome. I think when I started following you on Instagram, Mac, it was you were definitely still coaching and but you're, a lot of the content that you're putting out was nutrition or it was food related. And every day you'd post these stories and they'd be like your rants, you'd call them and you'd be debunking some kind of food um, trend or myth or something that people are doing that you thought was really stupid. And I always loved them. I thought they were really funny, but they were also pretty concise and pretty to the point and you didn't sort of muck around talking about stuff that wasn't relevant and yeah that's why I started following you because I just I thought your content was great and also being in the fitness industry you see a lot of people uh, selling stuff that is pointless or people who just have no education but selling themselves as a nutritionist or as an SNC coach or um, yeah giving themselves titles that 
aren't really recognized, but you were always very straight about what your scope of practice was, what you could advise on and who to go and see if it wasn't yourself, which I always thought was really great. So I guess that was possibly when you're still coaching, um, maybe when you were starting, you're studying nutrition. I'm not sure. Maybe that was down the track even further. It probably would have been when I had like, you know, I was doing like four hours of personal training a week. Because there was a stage where I just like held on to a bit of PT Mm -hmm. because I had clients who I, you know, had built up relationships with. And I had a really good situation with the gym that I was working at in terms of like how much rent I was paying. And it kind Mm -hmm. of suited the situation in my schedule. So I did keep personal training on. But talking to, you know, your feedback on my my, um, content, I really appreciate that firstly. Um, But, you know, for me, it is really driven from a motivation of falling for the bullshit, Mm. uh, experiencing like the disappointment, the sadness, even Mm. the despair from trying something, expecting it to be great, putting a lot of effort, energy, and sometimes even money into it and Mm. yielding like no return. And that's quite a damaging thing, like having all this effort, really trying and then nothing happened. And it was really at the expense of shit information and people who are in the industry to make a buck and nothing else. Mm. Um, So that's kind of why I always told, like got to the point, told it like it is and didn't fluff because I know that nutrition runs deep. It is not this hunky dory, like, Oh, you know, just tell people what to eat. They'll be fine. Like, you can really hurt someone with poor nutrition advice. And I think a lot Mm. of people who step outside of their scope of practice don't realize how much nutrition affects people's lives, like their whole self-worth, how they feel on a daily basis, how they feel about themselves can be affected through their nutrition. Um, And, you know, giving people erroneous expectations, ridiculous goals, restrictive plans, and then them ultimately falling short of it or, you know, um, not getting the results they want, that can be seriously damaging. And I went through that shit. Like there were some times in my life where things were not great. And a big contributor to why things were not great is because I felt like a failure. Um, I felt like I was wasting time. I felt inadequate. And nutrition was a big part of why that was the case. So yeah, it it is wanting to more or less help people avoid going through the shit that I went through. And I don't have time for people who are going to mislead people. I don't have, I don't care what their reasoning is, even if they're well-intended and don't mean to harm people. Mm -hmm. The fact that they haven't done their due diligence and are stepping outside of their scope is something that I don't have time with because I suffered from that sort of attitude. Mm. Yeah, no, I really respect that. It's really yeah, good to cool. hear because yeah, food is very emotional and it's connected or it's intertwined in all of our lives, whether you're an athlete, just a regular exerciser, whether you're just trying to eat healthier, move more, or whether you don't even think about, or you think you don't think about it at all. Like food is a very big part of our lives. We celebrate with it. It's part of our rituals. It's part of our culture. Um, and for some people it controls their lives, which I, I don't think is very good. And probably a lot of people can relate to that. Um, and we probably won't delve down that um, <laughs> rabbit hole too much, but uh, it's nice to hear how passionate you are and that it comes from a really genuine place uh, of wanting to help people not fall down 
that rabbit hole. Cause yeah, it is, it's pretty scary. Some of the advice that you see and there's some very vulnerable people looking up to these people giving this yeah. advice. So you're a hundred percent on the money. Like food is more than fuel. It's a part of our culture mm. and you know, a recommendation to eat in a certain way can kill someone's social life and oh, yeah. social yeah. health is a part of your total health. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, like people thinking that they can't socialize and then not socializing and then losing those bonds and feeling isolated that all stems from shitty nutrition advice and that is severely damaging to someone's like psychology mm. and their happiness so yeah it's it's a big thing for me and i'm like nutrition's no joke it is no joke good yeah that's awesome to hear i guess this will sort of lead us on to our next part uh that we really wanted to delve into is about the difference between eating for performance compared to just general healthy eating advice because i guess a lot of our listeners um are wanting to improve their nutrition to perform better or potentially recover better prevent injuries or i guess just match the fuel demands of high training volume and then you've also got just the general eat for health recommendations or eating for longevity um what's the difference between those two and when should somebody start looking to be leaning more into one direction or are they the same thing can they overlap that was many questions in one. <laughs> no, no, no that's a really good question it is it is multifactorial so i'll try mm. to check attack it in a concise way so the way i would approach it is that i don't think it's one or the other what mm. I think it is, is a layering effect. So mm. there are traits of all quote unquote good diets and little quotation bunny rabbit ears, whatever you want. <laughs> and, and some of those things uh, include an appropriate amount of energy intake. So calorie intake, um, they include an appropriate amount of whole foods that provide the vitamins and minerals that are needed to function. So another part of that is, as I alluded to before, you know, this diet facilitates function. Now we need to remember that the functional demands of a high level elite endurance athlete are different to just like a general person who's trying to be healthy. So the way I would approach it, as I said, is a layering effect. All diets start with this sort of, this uh, respect for whole foods in sufficient doses at sufficient amounts of variety. There is also a respect for total health and that includes social health, financial health, psychological health. You know, we don't want to be giving people diets that again, you know, cuts off their social health uh, because you're only as healthy as your weakest link. Like we need to consider the bigger picture here. So that's where we start. And that's what we would apply to your general health seeking. I want to just be healthy sort of approach. Okay. We would seek to implement practices that fit within their lifestyle to quote unquote tick the boxes um then if we are you know someone eating for performance we layer in a few more traits so we recognize that fueling demands will be different we recognize that um look the thing is things don't really change but the amount of sort of i guess attention and vigilance you need to uh sort of spend on certain areas may become far greater so for example you know eating enough calories for a lean high level endurance athlete slight being slightly off with that can result in some pretty hefty symptoms of like what is called low energy availability 
um, and they can really impair health and performance. Another thing, for example, is hydration. Now, hydration matters for everyone, but when you have extreme situations where you're doing heaps of exercise, such as a high-level endurance athlete, then hydration becomes something that you need to be far more calculated with, far more vigilant with, and far more intentional with in how you execute that. And the ways in which you would do that is also something that becomes a little bit more varied. And it's largely predicated on, you know, the type of activity, um, the goal of training, um, how elite they are, um, how much training they do. Uh, and also if there's a goal associated with that. So sometimes to become better at sport, you actually want to lose fat. You want to get leaner. So sometimes we have to balance providing sufficient fuel for health performance recovery but also being in a calorie deficit so we can become a lighter person and that's going to facilitate, you know, a, a greater running economy uh, and make you a better performing athlete, which is, you know, obviously the case for, you know, if we could make, put it in, in simple layman's terms, optimizing power to weight ratio for performance. Does that make sense? Yeah, mm. sure. Yeah, definitely. Really? <laughs> yeah, no, it, no, does. No, that does. it does. Yeah, no, there's heaps in that. And I think, um, yeah, I guess you kind of mentioned it in two different senses that um, low energy availability, obviously if you did have someone that was slightly overweight, as you just said, the power to weight ratio, if they could become a little bit leaner may help their performance. But then obviously there's that, um, I guess, fine line between losing too much. How do you know how much is too much to lose? How thin is too thin? Like, is it just something that mm. um, you just kind of figure out yourself and go, I feel comfortable at this weight or is it something like would we come and see you and go through a plan with that difficult situation and personally i would actually consider bmi in this instance mm, now we know bmi has its limitations mm -hmm. um, like if we've got someone who's very muscular but lean they're going to have a high bmi despite the fact that they have a normal amount of fat mass right so we can look at the person in front of us and say you know we can if they're very muscular, we could take BMI with a pinch of salt, but I still do think BMI can give some sort of indication. So when it comes to how, like how, how lean is too lean or how thin is too thin for athletes and performance, one thing that I would consider is, well, you know, their BMI, but I would also consider symptoms like for females, you know, what's their, what's their energy levels like, sorry, what's their um, menstrual cycle like. And then for all people, mm. all athletes it would be like, well, you know, are they recovering from training? You know, what's their well being like, what's their sleep like. And if we see symptoms of low energy availability, or if things are skeptical on, like if I'm, if things are sketchy on paper, you know, if you've got an endurance athlete training 10 hours a week and they're eating 1800 calories, um, then that's like a, that's like a flag that I would look deeper into. Um, so you can sort of get clues as to if someone might be in a state of LEA or, or low energy availability, and then you can sort of address it from there. Now, so the way I would usually go about it is I would estimate weight maintenance or predict weight maintenance targets based on the person's you know, information, their amount of activity, et cetera, et cetera. And then I would get them to eat to that. And it doesn't necessarily mean they're tracking calories. Sometimes I'll just give them ideas on portion sizes, which would roughly see them hit those calorie amounts through an eating routine. Then basically the aim would be to every single week that they maintain their weight or lose weight, add 5% calories. You keep doing that until they actually start to gain 
weight. Now, not just one week's a bit heavier because they had a few high sodium meals or whatever, salt mm. meals, mm-hmm. but you, you know, you actually see proper weight gain. And that's when you know that they are just going beyond their weight maintenance requirements at optimal physiological function. So how much we require to maintain our weight in terms of calories, that can be a floating target that can change with how the body changes its efficiency of using calories. So if we chronically eat less, then how much we need to maintain our weight would also slowly decline over time. So we're seeking that homeostasis there. The body can become more efficient with a limited, with a fewer amount of calories coming through food, right? So if we want to seek best possible human function, we want them to be like the most inefficient person possible with how they spend their calories. They don't need to conserve calories at all. Every single internal function has all the energy it needs to fire. Okay. So we want to find what I would term optimal weight maintenance calories. So we do that by adding food, adding food, adding food until we start gaining weight. Now I've had like 50 kilo female AFL players who are eating like 3000 plus calories. And that's the point where they start to gain weight. And that's happened over the course of like a four or five month period. But I've also had athletes where I've estimated their targets and that's been spot on. Now, once you've found that, you would then make tweaks depending on, you know, if the person wanted to gain or lose weight for their sport. So if the person was a little bit overweight and they were a runner and they wanted to lose weight to be better, you would try and find that weight maintenance point I probably wouldn't spend too much time trying to perfect it, but I would sort of maybe set set a maintenance, see how things respond and then adjust from there. Then after maybe a month or two, like the thing is we've got to remember that people don't have, sometimes they don't have that much time or sometimes they don't have that much pace, patience. So it is again, a fine line of, you know, considering adherence and buying from the client. But then from there, once we found a nice maintenance target or something that I feel like is about correct, then if they needed to lose weight, we would take a small deficit off that. We would reduce by, I would start with 10 to 15% below estimated weight maintenance targets. And usually for someone who is a highly active athlete, it's rare for me to go below, uh, mm. go below 25% below their weight maintenance. Does that make sense? So yeah. we're not going, you know, 20, we're not going 30% below their maintenance where we're not, we're only leaving it. The gap is 20%. And what's the risk then of, I mean, it might be pretty obvious to some people, but with, if you were to say drop 30%, um, and then obviously you'd start to get those symptoms and things. Can we dive into a little bit about, um, reds or red S, however you say it. Um, and just yeah. tell a little bit about the risks with not getting enough energy or calories in. Mm. So, um, when we see symptoms is going to be individual and it may take an extended period of time at a a certain calorie threshold that you might, before you start to see symptoms. Now the threshold for low energy availability is currently said to be 30 kilocalories. So 30 calories per kilogram of fat free mass. So how much you would weigh if you were 0% body fat, we want to have at least 30 calories per kilo of 
fat-free mass, right? Mm -hmm. So that's that might sound complicated, but it's basically a threshold where if you go below that, your energy intake is perceived to be low energy availability. But we must understand that we are all individual and some people might experience symptoms quite easily, uh, especially if you are lean and, act, and very active, you know, you might start to, it, it might be something that is a real risk for you. So what would happen in those situations? So essentially we would have less fuel available, available to do all the stuff that we want to do. And when I say stuff, I'm talking, you know, fuel and do activity running. Okay. Mm. I'm also talking recover from that activity. So the activity is disrupting. It is, it is in a, in an essence damaging and the way we get better, the way, you know, the thing that training does it, it provides a stimulus that we adapt to and we super compensate and become better for next time. Now, if we have limited fuel availability, we can't get maximal, sort of super compensation or adaptation from that stimulus. It is blunted. So we might not even be recovering back to baseline. We might actually be regressing and the damage mm. might just be sort of, well, quote unquote damage might just be accumulating. We might be digging ourselves in a hole and, you know, that can lead to injury and things like that. Then on the other side of the coin, when I say the various functions that we do, we also have internal functions and that includes, you know, cognition, that includes things like immunity, that includes digestion, that includes reproduction. And when we have limited energy available, the body has to do all its things with less food around, less energy. And it becomes in an essence like a hybrid fuel efficient car where it becomes more efficient. So what it does to become more efficient is it starts to perform in a subpar way because if it wants to perform optimally, it's simply going to need more fuel. It just doesn't have the fuel available to do that. So that's when we start to see, okay, we become more susceptible to uh, illness, like getting sick. And obviously if we take time away from training or if we get sick on the day or around a competition, that's going to impact our performance. Then there's the health side of things, uh, you know, bone mineral density may suffer. So we're more exposed or we're, we're at risk of stress fractures, injury and illness, um, changes in hormones as a result of the body's inability to produce those hormones due to a lack of fuel available may impact reproduction. You know, for females, it's quite obvious. We see a lack of the menstrual cycle, which when you know that that's there, when you don't have a, a when you don't have a period as a female, you know that something is not functioning as it should. Um, and then for males, you know you see reductions in testosterone, which has these things all have downstream effects that are ultimately to keep it simple and not rant on for hours affect health, performance, and well-being really significantly. And mm. you know they will. It is not helpful for you being a better athlete to be in this state chronically. Mm. Yeah, I think it's really tricky because I think a lot of athletes and maybe particularly in endurance space spaces tend to sort of think more is better. So more running is better. And if I need to be lean, then I'll have to be even leaner and I'll eat even healthier. And then that sort of leads into these crazy high mileage weeks um, and really just not eating enough because partly the athlete wants to be lean. Cause you know, you look at the marathon runners on the Olympics and they're super lean and, and stringy. Um, and I mean, maybe, so I guess there's the, the mentality 
part of it as well, which is something that would potentially need to be addressed by actually seeing a psychologist. Cause I think that's a whole separate issue. Mm. Um, but possibly there's athletes that are just actually underperforming before they're even actually getting any of these nasty symptoms like stress fractures or loss of menstruation. Um, but maybe just hindering their performance for a really long time and not realizing. Um, so how do you advise people around that, that maybe, well, they might say, well, I'm not having any issues. I can still sleep. I'm still training. I'm not injured, blah, blah, blah. Like how do you show people that they're not actually performing at their capacity or at what their capacity should be? And you're absolutely right in saying that there may be detriment to performance without seeing any other symptoms. Mm. Um, and you know, or maybe it's almost early like stages. Yeah. And also it's people can sort of create new norms. Like mm. I feel good. It's like, well, what is feeling good to you? Because maybe mm. if you ate more or were in a state of LEA, you would realize what feeling good really <laughs> feels like, you know, feeling mm. shit sort of becomes their, their feeling good because mm. they just get used yeah. to it. So yeah. that's something to consider. Um, what would I say to them? So one thing that I've learned is that you can't tell people what to do. You can't tell yeah. people they're wrong. Um, behavior change 101 is shut up and listen. Um, mm. So what you do is, well, what I would do is I would listen to them. And I'd say, why do you think this? okay, cool, great, listen to them. And then you would sort of ask them questions. And then sometimes they find themselves backed into a corner where they see the utility in trying something. And in this instance, that trying something might be eating more food and seeing if they gain weight and if they perform better. And often when you, when I have clients who, you know, they say, yes, you know, I would like to try this, which maybe doesn't happen immediately. Um, it sort of might happen after a period of time and through you sort of talking to them and explaining to them, Hey, did you think about this? Like, you know, are you aware that this can happen if you are in a state of low energy availability and, you know, I know performance is important to you, but you know, maybe you might be able to perform better if you were eating more and sort of like they come around over time, but you can't just tell them they're wrong anyway. Mm -hmm. So what I would say to them is like, okay, well, let's do a trial period. Let's, Let's, you know, do this for a week or two. Let's just give it a whirl. Tell me how you feel. Tell me if you gain weight. Uh, and almost always they don't gain weight. They feel better. And, you know, then they're sort of like, whoa, I'm eating so much more. I'm maintaining my weight. I feel so great. And my performance, like I'm actually progressing after a long period of time, basically maintaining my performance and not knowing why. Um, and then sort of that's, that's, that's it really. Um, of course, in some instances, you might need to refer out to someone mm. who is like a psychologist or something. Uh, but personally, from my experience, I've actually had a few athletes who I've been like, yeah, you are a candidate for low, low energy availability. All the symptoms and signs are pointing towards it. Um, I've never had to refer them to like any sort of psychologist before. Um, mm-hmm. I've referred out for other reasons, but I've never had to do that. And I found that when they come to me, I don't know is this, if this is just the way I position myself on social media or something, but if they're coming to me, it's because they, they, they sort of know what's going on. They've, mm. they've already opened themselves up to this low energy availability thing, or they've heard about it and they've started to read into it and they've sort of come to me through that. So I'm lucky enough that the clients I get who are candidates for 
low energy availability and reds and stuff, they're already sort of on board with doing something about it. And they, they already are interested in this topic and, and they are open to, Hey, like, I think I might've been doing this quote unquote wrong for a while. And mm. um, I'm, this makes sense to me. So I want to mm. find out more and, and see yeah. what happens. So yeah. so, yeah. The seed's been planted. Mm. Yeah. That's awesome. Mm. Um, could we talk Excellent. a little bit and just explain um, what relative energy deficiency is or low energy availability? Is there a difference between those two and then compare that to just energy balance? So how could somebody be maintaining weight, but actually in a low energy available state? That is such a good question. Yeah, because I think it's quite confusing, um, especially if people who don't have any background in nutrition or, uh, I don't know, haven't looked into exercise and sports science. um, Or just anyone. It is confusing. It is really important that we define terms, which I realize yeah. I probably haven't done a sufficient job. <laughs> That's that, okay. Considering the listeners. That's what Google's so, called. <laughs> low energy availability, LEA, that's just basically like the way I see them is they're sort of the same thing, but technically they're not in a sense. So low energy availability is just like you are eating a low amount of calories or you have an inefficient amount or a low amount of fuel available or a low energy availability, like the name says, right? <laughs> And REDS is like a series of symptoms or effects from low energy availability. And it's called relative energy deficiency in sport. And it basically just runs through all the health and performance, I guess, effects of this LEA thing. So I see them as like intrinsically tied. They are intrinsically tied. Um, Yeah. I don't really have separate definitions for them per se. No. Um, Yeah. I just personally, I just lob them into the same thing because to yeah. me they sort of are, um, but yeah. you know that's not the technical correct answer. Um, well, my understanding is Reds is is the condition that people would use to describe yeah. a patient with Reds, which they'd have to have LEA Great to have point. Reds, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it is, I guess, how you could diagnose it, or it is mm. a formal way of saying this person has Reds, mm. um, but it is a product of LEA. So that's yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, in terms of energy balance and energy availability, they are not the same thing. Now here's Mm. this massive brain explosion thing. That's like, I could turn into this buzzword topic and sell heaps of eBooks and be really (laughs) rich one day, maybe, but I'm not going to do that because I'm not a sellout. Um, you, you can be in a state of energy deficiency, but not be in a calorie deficit. So say it again, say it three times. (laughs) You can be be energy deficient. So deficient in energy needed for Mm. what you need to do, but not in a calorie deficit and therefore not losing weight. Therefore your weight stable. Yeah. Okay. So let me explain. Energy balance is simply put over the course of a day, the calories in versus the calories out. Now the calories in is obviously through anything you eat and drink. Um, some people might say, oh, it's not just what you drink and eat. It's also what you absorb and whatever. But, mm. you know, that's trying to make it too complicated and it's more complicated than it needs to be. Calories in is what you eat and drink. Calories out is the amount of energy your body expends through exercise, internal function, spontaneous movement, 
non-spontaneous movement. So me moving my hands, me talking, my posture, all of that stuff, that's energy out. Now the balance. If you are in an energy deficit where you're burning more than what you consume, weight loss will result. It sometimes doesn't happen immediately because of acute factors of scale weight, but that is what happens, right? And vice versa with your energy is in an energy surplus. Energy availability is your total energy intake minus the amount of energy you need to exercise. So the amount of calories you need to exercise. So the total amount of calories that you are consuming minus the amount of calories that you need for exercise alone. Like that's dedicated exercise, planned mm. exercise. And then that is divided by how much fat-free mass you have. So if I'm 100 kilos and 20% body fat, my fat-free mass, so me at 0% body fat, would be 80 kilos. So it would be if I was consuming 4,000 calories and I was expending 500 calories through exercise, that would leave 3,500 left over. And then I would divide that by 80 and that would be my energy availability. And then mm -hmm. if that number was less than 30, I would in theory be in a state of low energy availability. Mm -hmm. Right now, I don't want you to worry about the final part of that equation, which was the fat-free mass. I just want you to focus on the, this is how many calories I'm eating and I'm minusing the amount of calories I need for my exercise. Now, whatever's left over is how much I have for everything else. And that includes me functioning internally as a properly functioning human, right? If that amount is low, your body will then need to seek efficiency. It will need to become more efficient with how it uses its fuel. And that's when we see those declines in those human functions, which is reflected in us not being a well-functioning human. So we can, through this process of efficiency seeking or adaptation, so when we eat less, we burn less eventually over time. Now, this can be interpreted poorly or people can over mm. like take the magnitude of this too far. And then you have people talking shit like starvation mode and mm. you know, saying stuff like eat more to lose weight and all this sort mm. of mythical stuff. Like most things in nutrition, there's elements of truth behind them. But mm. anyway, we can be in a really fuel efficient state where relative to what we would burn if we were functioning at a point of thriving, we are burning much less. And that is our weight maintenance calories because we've become more efficient. So we are in that instance, deficient in energy needed to function optimally, but we're not in a deficit because through efficiency, our body has matched that. Mm, yeah. So that's when our body's yeah. now, it's decreasing performance potentially, it's down regulating all your internal processes. So maybe your digestion may not be as good. You might be losing some bone mineral density and all those sort of 100%. more sinister symptoms that we spoke about before. hundred percent. And that's, that is then the symptoms of reds, mm. red, relative energy deficiency in sports. So they do, they're all interrelated there. Yeah. Um, wow. It's so good to break that down. Cause it is quite, it was very confusing uh, for anyone, for most people. Um, so it's good that you've made some quite clear. Well, I think that's probably as clear as it can be explained really. Cause I'm sure there is a lot more complex chemistry behind all of that, uh, but probably not really that important for the average person to understand those details. Yeah. So on the spot, that is like my attempt at trying to dumb it down. And there are things that I missed 
there are things that I didn't cover adequately, but mm. for the sake of the listeners, like trying to explain the difference between mm. energy balance and energy availability, mm. that is my attempt to dumb it down. So I hope mm. the listeners are like, yeah, I kind of get what you're saying at least. Mm. Yeah. I think yeah. No, I think that, I think that makes sense. And hopefully if anyone didn't get it, they can just rewind back a little bit and listen <laughs> to it again and maybe take some notes, jot it down and let it, let it sink in. Yeah. That's okay. They're really the complicated post. topics. <laughs> yeah. They're really complicated topics. Yeah, definitely. And yeah. how do people like when you're saying like all those numbers, you know, you've got the kilograms, the calories, the percentages, all these numbers, people can get really obsessed by it. They're tracking their calories. How do you different, differentiate between being really obsessive and just thinking about the numbers all the time, tracking everything, weighing everything and just having a healthy, um, I guess, focus on your health and trying to, whether you're losing weight, gaining weight, gaining muscle mass, whatever it is, how do you not get obsessed by that? Is that just, I guess, different personalities will, um, be different in that sense but is there a way to avoid making it become more of a mm. psychological sort of obsession and especially someone who is high performing too but maybe yeah. not high performing enough to have a nutritionist that is yeah. sponsoring them you know maybe they haven't actually got a helping hand but they're still at that high level that they need to eat more than the average person or have a you know performance yeah. diet yeah Oh, you guys are like nailing the questions. We've got like three questions now that have just been oh, so good. Um, okay. So yeah, it is a fine line. Uh, it's a very difficult thing to, you know, it is a slippery slope. You start, mm. you know, using my fitness power, you start obsessing, well, not obsessing, but you start, you know, you get a whoop and you're like those whoop things, you know, the Oh. watch things i don't even know how they pronounce it anyway um you start getting that on an apple watch and you're like oh my recovery score ah, i burned this many calories and like numbers start to come in the frame and it's very easy to not start to take the numbers too seriously mm. now we sh like we need to remember that these things are just other sources of data that should be viewed in combination with the sources of, of data that are things like how we feel, our internal hunger cues, how hungry we are, things like that. The problem is when people like get fixated on the numbers because they feel like they can't trust their own cues. And then you end up going down that slippery slope of no longer having a connection with your internal hunger cues, feeling like any thought of controlling your intake is just not gonna happen unless you have my fitness pal there or people are basing their training exclusively off their recovery score on whoop, 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 mm. whatever. <laughs> um, and, you know, we've got to understand that while these things are quantitative, they're objective, they are numbers and data, and they are not really influenced by thoughts and feelings, they are not perfect. They are not foolproof. They should not be seen as definitive. There is error. You know, if you feel like shit, but your recovery score is like, oh, you're recovered. Don't train or take it very easily or easy or focus on doing something for recovery, okay? So it's when people start to fixate on those objective metrics only where we run into some issues. And in terms of looking at nutrition more specifically, one thing that I've seen happen time and time again, and it happened to me at a certain point in my life is... Oh, if I can't track it, I'm like 
you know, I failed, I'm doing something wrong, or I'm not eating in, in a way that I should, and I'm not doing stuff that aligns with my goals. And, you know, I, I'm a terrible person almost. And therefore the anguish of social occasions, because when we go out to dinner, like we can't track it accurately, let's be honest. The anguish associated with that makes social occasions unappealing to the point where people just don't do that stuff. And then we see impacts on total health and well-being that are quite mm. significant. So, yeah, I mean, one thing that I try or seek to do with my clients who are starting to look at numbers is, for example, if they're tracking and their goal allows it, I would recommend at minimum one meal per week that is not tracked. Now, people mm. might be listening and thinking, oh, so you recommend like a cheat meal, right? I'm like, mm. no. No, 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 far from it. It is approached in the same calorie conscious manner and it's not necessarily a social meal. It can be, but it is still a health seeking meal. And what we do there is we seek to keep up the skill of eating without my fitness powder do the controlling for us. Because when we don't have my fitness power, we need to rely on other things to do, our, to do the job of controlling our calorie intake. Now, if we go for extended periods of time where all we're using is my fitness power, guess what? We lose that ability or that skill of, you know, being like, well, am I hungry? Do I feel full? You know? And so that's why we, we, we provide that opportunity for people to practice that skill. That's, that's the rationale behind that. Um, so that's speaking to, you know, regular non-tracked days, I guess, that can give people that, um, yeah, that opportunity to, to keep up those skills. Mm. Um, and then also asking people like, you know, how they feel, like rather than just going, oh yeah, you've lost weight and all your calorie data is looking good. Yeah, but how do you feel eating this way? Do you feel good eating all of these fruits and veggies? So does that make you feel physically? What about how does that make you feel about yourself? Do you feel good about your choices? Mm. And then trying to expand things a little bit more. So they're seeing, they're firstly practicing multiple ways of calorie control. They're also more open to what a certain way of eating can do for them. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So it sounds like you are trying to encourage people to, um, maintain their ability to, I hate saying these words together, but listen to their body uh, yeah. and just being in touch with um, their food signaling cues, I mm -hmm. guess, which sounds pretty obvious, right? But potentially really hard for somebody who is used to tracking their food or potentially someone who likes numbers and likes objective data points um, or just someone who's used to doing that. Uh, but yeah, I think that's really good advice. And I think it's something that probably everyone should be aware of, even if they're not tracking their food, just their ability to pay attention to their hunger cues. Cause I think there'd be no one who hasn't overeaten before, um, 100%. or not eaten something potentially when they are a little bit hungry, but thought, Oh, well, I don't need any more. I've already eaten a big dinner or a big meal or blah, blah, blah. Um, and, so, and it's not an easy thing to do in the modern world where we have no. highly palatable, super delicious, calorie dense food mm. readily available. We don't even need to leave our couch and it's at our door mm. with Uber Eats or, you know, yeah. convenience stores and, you know, ice creams everywhere. And, you know, we check out at the aisle and there's the chocolate bars there. We check mm. out the supermarket and there's the chocolate bars there. It's so so in the modern world, yeah, in the modern world, you can't just rely on internal cues. 
Mm, um, okay, you also yeah. have to rely on, in my opinion, understanding of like health seeking nutrition. And that is, mm. okay, we understand foods that are going to fill us up and foods that aren't going to do a great job of filling us up. We understand calorie density. We understand fiber. We understand mm. that this particular meal or this ingredient or this food relative to its calorie yield is going to do a crappy or a really good job of filling us up. And we can align our food selection with that. So yeah, it needs to be twofold if you're not going to use something objective to control your intake. Um, mm. And there are, of course, instances where the deviation from homeostasis or weight maintenance or like the body's comfortable zone are so great that you almost need tracking to do it. And you, But I would emphasize the fact that tracking is just a short-term strategy. So, for mm. example... You know, that, that 50 kilo uh, AFL player I mentioned before who ended up eating, like, I think it was over 3000 calories or something before she actually started to gain weight, like to get her calories in to that point consistently, she needed to track because even with all these sort of calorie dense, hyper palatable foods, you know, drinking juice, putting biscoff in the oats, um, you know, having the daily indulgences, having all the calorie dense, low fiber carb foods to get the calories in wasn't enough. At the end of the day, um, the only way for her to ensure that she was consistently eating enough was for her to objectively quantify her diet. Um, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with using tracking for brief periods of time, um, you know, a few months on end at most, but it must be emphasized that very, 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 very rarely would tracking be something that you would do 365 days a year? And so mm. many people like, you know, do tracking, they start tracking, they get a particular positive outcome from it. And then they feel like if they stop tracking that they'll revert or they'll mm. lose their gains or they'll gain weight or something like that. And then they just, before you know it, it's like, it's been like, you know, several years and they've tracked every single day and they've got that my fitness power streak going and the funniest thing is when they're like showing off about it I'm like, <laughs> oh, oh it's so sure sad I'm, yeah i'm like ah, oh, i'm not sure i'd be showing off about that like i don't know if that's a great thing no. um yeah it's really sad it's all consuming and it's so many people in the fitness industry and the, and the sporting world elite athletes people who are new to the fitness world. It's, and it's so, it's, it's really scary because it consumes people's lives, um, which we, we spoke, we touched on that before. Um, yeah. When do you think would be a good time then for someone to go, okay, I need someone to give me a hand with my nutrition. Like, is there, a, is, is it never too early? Like can everyone do with a bit of extra help to improving their eating or, or is it something that you should wait? Do you th is it something that is only for a certain population group? Mm. Um, oh, that's a very tough question to answer. Mm. I'm probably going to re-listen this podcast and think like I could have done a better answer than that. Okay. In, in, in just like in the moment answer, um, mm. I'm going to say, the time by which someone might want to seek the help of a nutrition professional is when people determine that a nutrition related goal that requires a change in their nutrition is something that they truly value. And mm. it's not just like an acute urge, like, Oh, I want to get lean. I want to lose weight. I want to lose five kilos. 
And it's like something that happens, like they thought of it the night before and the next day, then they're like, you know, contacting Mac on Instagram saying, I need to start right now. And then I think once people have actually sat on an idea and they've sort of thought about it and they've let the idea marinate in a sense and thought about, well, what's feasible, you know, they've thought about the trade-offs that they know of at that time. Like, Hey, you know, I, I'm going to have to like maybe cut down on my drink, like drinking. I think a lot of people who are seeking fat loss probably like would assume that. Um, and once they've actually had a chance to like explore the idea in their head, then I think they should probably seek help. Now, what I basically said there is they haven't gone and had a crack on their own. Why? I'm a big fan of, you know, there's no such thing as doing it once, doing it right. And one of the best ways to learn is to do things not so right. Mm. But I think you can get more to the point if you just try and attempt at least to do it once, do it right. Now, if you have a goal that requires a nutrition intervention, you have two choices. You can either have a crack at it on your own and you'll learn heaps of great stuff. Or you can just go straight to the source, the person who is the expert, the person who can really help you. Now, initially up front, you're going to spend more money. But guess what? If you go down the route of trying to have a crack on your own, you're probably going to end up going to the nutrition professional anyway and paying the money. It's sort of like me when I used to try and fix my own cars. I would <laughs> go in and try and fix it with the best intentions and I'd buy all the tools and spend the time when I could be doing something else. And then I'd ultimately fail. And then I'd have to go to the mechanic anyway. <laughs> Same sort yeah. of idea. Mm -hmm. You know, just even if you just do it for a little while, you'll at least get a bunch of habit lessons or things to focus on that you mm -hmm. can sort of apply, see how you go. And then you can come back to the nutrition professional if you need further help. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like, hey, do 12 weeks with a nutrition professional. Learn a bunch of stuff. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to reach your goal, but you might put it, even if you don't progress, you might be just putting in groundwork that's going to set you up for success. Mm -hmm. Then go and have a crack on your own and discover what you struggle with. And then maybe after that, you can be like, okay, so I implemented it on my own. These are the things that I struggled with. Let's learn, like let's work collaboratively to, to work around those things. And, you know, from my eyes, that would be the approach of a lot of people that I would recommend. Um, yeah, it is a tough one, though, because... The stakes you know, are high, so right? Much, yeah, the stakes are high and there's so much content out there. It's not just on social mm. media. It's like, you know, Tracy Grimshaw today, tonight. Oh, there's this new diet <laughs> called the fucking dildo diet and everyone should yeah. follow it. And it's like <laughs> stupid like that. I don't know. Make up yeah. words that are inappropriate. <laughs> um, um, uh, well, I mean, yeah. well, where, where would someone um, go? I know the, there is the Eat for Health guidelines online, which is where I, in the past, have recommended people to go to check out for the most basic health principles um, if they're working on their own. Is that the kind of place you'd send people if they're looking to sort of um, have their own intervention before actually seeking help? Or would you just let them explore the interweb? <laughs> like, I mean, obviously, no, they haven't asked you, but do, I guess just for our listeners, if no one else, um, mm. where, where do you Another go? Another great question. Another great question. Yeah. 
And I've actually been asked this one before, so I feel like my answer is somewhat going to be adequate and I probably won't re-listen to this and think, oh, that was terrible. Um, <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> look forward to it. <laughs> yeah, so look, um, I think the reality of the situation is that we need to accept that the Australian Dietary Guidelines and dietitians mm. and legitimate nutritionists and recommendations to eat plants, they don't sell because they're not sexy. Mm. Um, nope. People want the thing that they saw Tracy Grimshaw promote that'll lose them several kilos very quickly. Yeah. Um, people want the shiny new toy. And unfortunately, I think the reality of the situation is that people will go through failure and be misled, but they'll end up, if they stick to their guns, they'll probably end up in the right hands eventually. Mm. Now, with that being said, I feel like I have tasked myself with trying to catch people as early as possible. So mm. they might go through a few little fads or get involved in like, you know, some guy on YouTube or something or what some PT at their gym says, and they might get entrenched in that for a bit, but soon after they get snavelled up by like legitimacy. And the way I seek to do that or move further up the order of when like, they sort of notice, I'm not going to say notice me, but notice like legitimate nutrition information mm, yeah. is by trying consistently or just trying to answer the a million dollar question or the million dollar question of how can we make, Hey, just eat plants. Hey, just like, you know, follow yeah. these Australian dietary guidelines, sort of rough rubric sort of thing. Yeah. How can we make those? appealing and sexy that is the million dollar question <laughs> yeah and you know we can try and make them fun and explain them in layman's terms on social media and do these nice graphics and things mm. like that and i feel like that helps and there are people who are helping that movement like mm. there are a lot of evidence-based folks out there who are you know there is an, an uprising of the popularity of this stuff now um so yeah i think that that is what I would answer to that question. Yes. Mm. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, it's, it is so true. A lot of basics are really boring and not attractive and hard to sell. So yeah, I guess that, I guess it'll be interesting to see what, where um, dietitians go in the future with continuing to market that to everyday people. Um, I guess you mentioned a few times eating plants. I know that on your social media, you have promoted maybe a bit more in the last, maybe six months or so. Maybe this time frame is wrong. My time in my head is all who knows what all over the place. Um, but you eat a lot of plant-based meals and I think you've got a podcast as well about, um, eating plant-based for athletes and about um, considerations and things to look out for. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I know that's quite a very big topic, but um, is it safe to eat a plant-based diet if you're an athlete and is it sustainable? Yeah. So, um, oof, okay. So a bit of background, um, you know, through just my nutrition interest and stuff I learned and applying things myself, I love eating plants. They make me feel good. 
Uh, they're really voluminous. They're full of fiber. I just love eating plants. So I started to sort of see greater appeal to eating less meat in combination with like increasing values of the, like wanting to sort of protect or help the environment. So I have been eating less meat. I've been eating more quote unquote vegan meals. Uh, I still eat meat. I still eat yogurt every day, but I don't eat that much meat. I cut down. This is not for a health reason, but more for just personal preference reasons. Now, here's the thing. Both a vegan or an omnivorous diet can be optimally healthy, both for just general health, but also for athletes. Both diets can be optimal for sports performance, assuming they are executed well. And the way in which they are executed ticks all the boxes that relate to, hey, this diet gives the person what they need to function and thrive and all that sort of stuff. The reality of the situation, and this is undeniable, a diet that does not contain animal products, from a practical perspective, it is a little bit more difficult to tick all those boxes. And this is because there are, quote unquote, things in meat and animal products that are not really present in plant foods. So if we cut out meat or if we cut out animals to keep it simple because, you know, we have dairy and eggs and things like that. If we cut out animals and just eat plant-based, it is hard for us to get certain stuff. So we have to sort of go out of our way to make sure we get those things. Mm. So if you are considering, like eating plants generally is a good idea. And we want to eat heaps of fruits, veggies, whole grains, beans, and legumes. Okay. But if we, if we do that with a diet that has some animals sprinkled on top, great. You're going to probably find it pretty easy to hit all your targets. If you take the animals out, you have to find another way to get the things that the animals gives you. This can be achieved, but again, it might be a little bit more practically difficult. You have to be a little bit more vigilant. You might have to potentially supplement. Um, so it is a little bit harder and that's something that you'd want to accept. But if you're, values for the environment or your morals with animals and you know that sort of stuff if those things are strong then it will be worthwhile for you to you know endure that slight increase in practical burden in order to tick the boxes now that sort of that encompasses all you know both athletically athletically minded sort of vegan diets and general health vegan diets Speaking more towards the athlete side of things, the major consideration for a vegan versus omnivorous diet is energy availability, believe it or not. Mm. Now, plants are extremely, extremely filling. They are full of fiber and they are low calorie per bite. Eating lots of plants is a really good way to eat less calories because of the characteristics of plant foods. They encourage a reduction in the amount of calories you would eat over time because they are filling and they are low calorie per bite. If you are an athlete who trains a lot, who needs to eat a shit ton of carbohydrates and calories, if you are eating plants exclusively, you're going to have a hard time eating enough. Mm. 
So let's say you're an endurance athlete and you've got to eat, you know, north of five grams per kilo of your body weight. So your body weight times five, whatever that number ends up being, that's the amount of carbohydrates you've got to eat a day. You've got to eat north of five grams per kilo of carbs per day. If you actually worked out how much that equals in sweet potato, you'll probably think there's no way that's going to happen. And if you tried, you wouldn't finish the portion of sweet potato that you would need to eat. And you would probably end up coughing up blood and, you know, shitting yourself and various other undesirable Mm. things just through the amount of food volume, the amount of fiber you would need to eat, et cetera. So with speaking to that, if you have, you know, meats in your diet, if you have animal products, you know, um, you can eat like a lot of these calorie dense foods that are not vegan. They are on the menu. You can have them. So in theory, it's going to be a little bit easier for you to like eat to your fueling requirements. If you eat animal products, if you don't have any reason to cut out certain foods again, can we eat enough calories to, to fuel a very high fuel fuel target or calorie target as a vegan? Absolutely. We can. There are plenty of calorie dense vegan foods out Mm. there. Oh yeah. Just, it's just a little bit harder practically. And you might just want to be a little bit more vigilant with your food selection in order to make it actually comfortable and feasible for you to eat enough protein wise, which is the other one that everyone goes on about hugely overplayed in my opinion. Um, I don't think that hitting protein as a vegan is as hard as what really anyone thinks. Um, especially if you're an athlete, because if you're eating a shit ton of food, you're going to get a shit ton of protein that sort of comes with that. Like if your oat portion, your portion of oats of a morning goes from 50 grams to hundred grams, you're getting an extra five grams of protein in that in and of itself. And it's like those things across the day, we get these accessory proteins from whole grains and even like just random plant foods, they add up. So I actually think that hitting like say two grams per kilo body weight in protein, that's easier if you are an athlete eating a lot of food, in my opinion. Um, And I actually looked into this, like this interest in both sports nutrition and plant-based diets sparked me to do a whole research project on this at uni. Mm, Interesting. um, There is a pretty good paper on this topic by, who wrote it? Again, terrible. I have to send it to you or something. That's all right. Yeah, we'll send it through and um, we'll put it in the show notes there's a really fantastic paper, which was basically practical recommendations for vegan athletes or plant-based oh. athletes. It includes an example day of eating as well. So oh, awesome. One paper. And the practical recommendations are super clear and concise. And I pretty much use that paper to do my research project. And yeah, also cool. it formed the basis of the podcast I recorded on this, on this very topic. Um, mm, awesome. So, That's yeah. good. Cause you don't often get actual, this is what you should eat. Like it's kind of just like very broad guidelines or um, yeah, there's not, not often you get an actual specific, Mm. this is what you need Mm. to do, or this is an option to try, which is good. And people are left with more questions than anything. Mm. If you just say eat more carbs, they're like, well, what does that actually look like? Yeah. 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 I really like the fact that this paper does actually provide example days of eating. Mm. Yeah. No, that's awesome. That's really interesting. Um, And just, on that, you mentioned your podcast, or I mentioned it before, mm-hmm. uh, for all our listeners, and we will put all this in the show notes, but um, Mac has got a fantastic podcast, which probably just about everything we've spoken about today, you've 
got an individual episode <laughs> for and you go into more detail. Um, there's also heaps of special guests too uh, on the podcast as well, which have got areas that, that um, sorry, their area of expertise is on that topic and then they delve even further into it. So um, definitely worth checking out if there's any of those areas that you find interesting or if not reaching out to Mac on Instagram. Um, right on. I guess finally, um, is there anything that you want to add uh, maybe some advice just really broadly for our listeners. If there's one thing they can take away from this conversation, um, maybe some advice about navigating social media or maybe just about the people who are telling them, giving them heaps of advice that, you know, they should be not listening to or listening to. Is there anything that you would want people to take away from this? I would, yeah, actually, there is. You know what? There is. There's, there's so well. much. I bet there's so much. We could just go on for another three hours. <laughs> no, that, this is what I want people to take away from this podcast. Yeah. Food is a free gift to an enhanced life, a happier life. The problem awesome. is that most folks don't know how to utilize this free gift. And actually it can come at the detriment of their life where it harms their health. Now, if you are able to appropriately take this gift and use it, your life can be so much better or really good. I'm not going to say so much better, but really good. You can have a physique that you are pleased with. You can feel really good. You can be cognitively on point and thrive at like, you know, your job or whatever you can. Did I mention social life? I don't know. You can perform well in sport you can, or activity. Like nutrition can give you so much if you know how to use that gift. So remember that that's what nutrition can do for you. And if you are thinking about a goal relating to nutrition, don't forget that, Nutrition can make your life better because if you get fixated on one particular aspect of what nutrition can do for you, such as fat loss exclusively, it may bring a net negative to your life. Remember total health is multifaceted. It's more than just your blood work and your body fat percentage. It includes your financial health, your spiritual health, your emotional health, um, your uh, social health is a big one too. And then of course your physical health there too. So mm. That's it. Wow. That was good. Drop the mic. I love that. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's awesome. I don't think you could have covered any more in the, those last few sentences. Yeah, that's awesome. That's very, very good advice. Um, gosh, right thank you so much for coming on. Really, really appreciate your time. There is so much in this episode, and I really think our listeners are going to get a lot, a lot out of everything I had to say. And this is probably one that I'd recommend people to listen back to. And because uh, we covered a lot of topics as well, like there's a lot in that. Um, we will put all the links for Max. So we'll put your podcast, we'll put a link to the article we spoke about, the blog post uh, about vegan diets. Um, and then also, Matt, could you tell us about who you work with at the moment? So if anyone wants to get in touch with you or you can tell our listeners where the best place would be to get in touch with you. 
Yeah, for sure. So honestly, just hit me up on Insta. I'm pretty good at reply, as you as you know. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. <Yes. laughs> um, so yeah, just hit me up on Insta. It's at Mackenzie Baker underscore M A C K E N Z I E. Um, I also have a podcast on Spotify and iTunes called the Macabolic Podcast. Um, I work with a company called Fortitude Nutrition Coaching, uh, and that's where my clients come through that I work with. Um, but of course, if you have any questions about that, just hit me up directly and I'll, I'll answer those, of course, and direct you accordingly. Um, and I also, well, I was an assessor at Sports Nutrition Australia, which I stopped doing, but not for the reason that I don't like them or anything like that, but for the reason that we have a new course that is going to be launched very soon, which is called uh, Nutrition for Fit Pros. And basically the whole intention behind the course is to provide personal trainers who do not want to go and get formal nutrition qualifications to provide them with a framework of how to coach their clients within the Australian mm -hmm. dietary guidelines that is completely within their scope of practice. Uh, and it yields fitness Australia CEC credits. Jeez, oh, have wow. I sold you? <laughs> yeah, right. That's awesome. That's fantastic. I think there's a lot of people who will be interested in doing that or should be interested in doing that <laughs> if nothing else. Yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. Sure. That's right awesome. On. So that's that. Um, and I just wanted to say, like, what you guys are doing, like, I'll be completely transparent. I wasn't familiar with your podcast until, you know, you hit me up this morning, but I had a look. And I think that a podcast for endurance athletes um, who, you know, and talking about things like Red S and low energy availability and, and stuff like that, I think that stuff is so valuable. So thank you for doing that keep it up and i'm absolutely thrilled and honored to be uh invited onto your podcast thank yeah. you so much it's like yeah we're honored like it's our pleasure completely to have you um you're welcome back anytime <laughs> there's yeah. so much more to talk about that was a good intro and then we can dive a little bit deeper next time but yeah thank you so much like yeah short notice so we really appreciate that all good thanks for having me cool. thank you thank all you right. yeah legend